Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library of books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, and since I am back on track with the presidents, we are picking up with this month's, this month with our 17th president, Andrew Johnson, making this week's book of the week, Andrew Johnson, a biography by Hans L. Trefuse. And this week's cocktail is called Taylor Made, which is 45 milliliters of bourbon, 7.5 milliliters of falernum liqueur, 25 milliliters of pink grapefruit juice, 25 milliliters of cranberry juice, and five milliliters of honey syrup. I went with the milliliter measurements instead of my usual ounces because 25 milliliters is like five sixths of an ounce. I don't know how to measure out five sixths of an ounce. I don't have that. Uh, five milliliters is one sixth of an ounce. I think it's basically just going to be a dash, but I, I mean, I don't know how to measure that, but my little measuring cup comes with um, milliliter measurements. So I'm going to, you can see that, but it does. It has milliliter markings on there. So I'm going to go with that. Uh, also, I went with Falernum syrup versus Falernum liqueur because there was no Falernum liqueur in my area. So the syrup was available off Amazon. It's going to be a slightly less boozy version of the cocktail, but it should be fine. We'll see what the, we'll see how this goes. Let's do this. Andrew Johnson was born on December 29, 1808 in Raleigh, North Carolina to Jacob and Mary, a.k.a. Polly Johnson. He was their third child. He had an older brother, William, who was born in 1804, and a sister, Elizabeth, who died in childhood. When Andrew was three years old, his father also died, leaving the already poor family in pretty desperate straits. Now, Polly did marry again, but she married another poor white guy uh, named yeah, Turner Daughtry, and eventually she apprenticed both of her sons to James J. Selby's tailor shop. Now, terms of apprenticeship were pretty harsh. Johnston was apprenticed in 1818 when he was nine years old. His term of indenture was until he was 21. So that's 12 years of service to, to learn how to be a tailor. Now understand, there's a lot that goes into tailoring, especially the bespoke custom-made stuff, but 12 years is a long time, especially children learn a lot faster than adults do. I'm still going to have to eyeball this and guess it because there's no 45 milliliter marking. It goes from 40 to 50. Well, let's get creative here. But that's why the cocktail is called Tailor Made because he was a trained tailor, actually. He was quite a very good tailor. There's one anecdote in the book about how um, him and a political, they, they were kind of opponents, but they were friendly with each other and they each had different trades. So the opponent made him something. So he made a custom coat for the guy and they became friends after that, which, you know, that's awesome. That's, that's how it should be. Uh, prior to, to his own apprenticeship with the tailor, Johnson had learned that, that essentially people would meet at the tailor's shop for political discourse and conversation. There was also, you could learn to read there because books were brought and uh, the tailor's wife kind of taught him how to read. And so even before his apprenticeship, he was kind of hanging out at the tailor's shop. Oh shit. Honey, yeah. I need help. The bottle is sticky. It's syrup and so it's really on there. Thank you. Thank I you. Downstairs. Quiet puppies or sus puppies. All right, I have to eyeball 7.5 milliliters. Where the milliliters go? 7.5, okay. So anyways, he was already hanging out at the tailor's shop just learning political discourse. And he was kind of fascinated by the back and forth and everything that went into it. And he learned quite a bit from there as far as like debating and everything goes. There we go. 
ultimately he started his apprenticeship and uh, my public education as highlighted in battle cry of freedom last month was really not a thing in the south but by listening to the citizens debate and talk in the tailor's shop johnson learned how to form ideas and debate himself which skills he continued to improve upon when he was himself apprenticed to the own shop and then just kind of helped build out this political character uh, however over time Johnson came to see his 12-year apprenticeship, especially one that he didn't actually agree to, his mother signed him up for it, he didn't agree to it, was a bit of a raw deal. So ultimately he ended up running away, and he talked his brother into running with him. Now, you might not think that's a bad deal, but that apprenticeship was, was a contract. He was essentially an indentured servant, and so running away was a no-no. And James J. Selby, I mean, he was essentially the property of James J. Selby, not in the same way that actual slaves were um johnson could go home at night and see his mother but by running away he was precluded from finding other work anywhere in the state of north carolina so he ran south he went to south carolina and um interestingly enough i don't know if james selby was just like a ship master but he ended up finding work in a tailor shop in south carolina so he couldn't work in north carolina he went south worked in south carolina as a tailor um, Selby offered a $10 reward for the return of the Wayward Boys and the boys, and I think William ultimately made his way to Texas and that's where he stayed. I don't know if he squared up with Selby before doing that. Johnson, when he was in South Carolina, was an avid reader and that's what he was remembered as. And he had planned on marrying a local girl, so he kind of made a quilt for her, for her as sort of a notice of intent to court. But her mother rejected his suit given that he was a penniless tailor and a runaway to boot. Um, I mean, in the South, they'd return runaway slaves, but the, you know, runaway white boys were a totally different thing. Once his suit was rejected, he decided to return to Raleigh, see if he could square accounts with Selby, because maybe his suit would then be accepted, right? But Selby basically refused. Well, he didn't quite refuse, but he said, yeah, you could square it, but I'm not going to take payments. I want a lump sum. He didn't have a lump sum, so nothing doing. So he ended up traveling again, worked for a bit in... Alabama, ended up in Alabama, worked for a bit there before going up to Tennessee, and he ended up settling in Greenville, Tennessee. Um, he, he was prohibited from ever working in the state of North Carolina because he was never able to settle that indenture. So he ended up in Tennessee, that's where he stayed. And he set up shop there because he immediately found work with a tailor, impressed the tailor enough that the tailor, when he retired, sold him the shop. All right, was it? probably more than a dash, but we're just going to call that a dash. So he's living and working in Greenville, and part of the reason he decided to stay there is that he met Eliza McArdle, and they married. And together they had five children, Martha, Charles, Mary, Robert, and Andrew Jr. Now, Andrew Jr. was very much the youngest. He was born 18 years after Martha. Martha and Mary were the apples of Johnson's eyes. Uh, with Charles and Robert eventually disappointing him, <laughs> largely due to both of them descending into alcoholism. Charles eventually died during the Civil War, and Robert committed suicide afterwards as a direct result of his alcoholism. This is a shaken one, so give me a second here. Now, like many poor people who work their way into a better position, Johnson was quite adept with money, all right? And, and that's kind of how it works. If, if you work your way up, you appreciate what it takes to get that money, and you learn and become better with it, and that's pretty universally true actually um, those who have it 
are from birth are rarely as gifted with it as those who earned it themselves. Now, he ended up owning property all around Greenville, and his own tailor shop had apprentices working for him. And he kind of used this rags to riches, pull yourself up mentality to make the leap into politics uh, as the working man's, you know, politician. <laughs> first, he, I believe he, I don't know if he was the mayor of Greenville first or if he was the local congressman in Tennessee, but eventually he became a member of the U.S. House of Representatives where he served from 1843 to 1853 before becoming governor of Tennessee for four years finally rounding out his political career pre-Civil War as a U.S. Senator, which position he was in when the South seceded, including his own Tennessee. Not too bad. Through all of this, he was very staunchly in the Democratic Party. Uh, both in party and in principle, he held himself as a strict constitutional constructionist and Jacksonian. He held slaves himself, firmly believed that black people were inferior to whites by every measure. Every bill he passed was set to ensure that whites were supreme over blacks and to maintain status quo in the South. But when Lincoln won and the South seceded, he's the only representative from a seceding state who did not secede with them. Maintained that the Union was now and forever, that nobody had the right to secede, that that this was against the Constitution, and he was a strict Unionist man. So once they seceded, he essentially had no home to go to because Tennessee was no... I mean, he, he remained in the Senate as the sole voice of a secessionist state representing the South, but he was essentially uh, uh, viewed as a traitor in secessionist Tennessee. So... I mean, so ardent was his defense of the Union and his belief that the Constitution should be adhered to in all things that in 1862, when Tennessee was at least partially ready for Reconstruction, Lincoln appointed Johnson as the military governor to the state with the intention of bringing the rest of the state in line and back into the Union fold. Uh, and he remained the military governor of Tennessee throughout the, the war, all the way up until he was elected vice president for Lincoln's second term. Now, on March 4, 1865, during his swearing-in ceremony, Andrew Johnson, for the first and only time in his life, appeared in public entirely intoxicated. I mean, can you imagine a worse time to show up intoxicated when you're being sworn in as the second most powerful man in the nation? The entire Senate worried that this drunkard was now the president of the Senate and next in line for the White House. But Lincoln expressed his full confidence in Johnson, saying, I have known Andy Johnson for many years. He literally, quote, I have known Andy Johnson for many years. He made a bad slip the other day, but you need not be scared. Andy ain't a drunkard. Many of you might wonder why exactly uh, Lincoln switched horses midstream, if you will, because Johnson was clearly not his vice president during his first term. That was a Hamlin, somebody Hamlin. Anyways, um, the reason he did it is because there was a really good chance he might actually lose to McClellan on the Democratic ticket, who was pushing for peace. But he didn't want peace that was going to leave slavery intact. He wanted peace eradicated by the time of the 1864 elections. And so he went with Andrew Johnson because Andrew Johnson was a war Democrat. But his credentials as a unionist were absolutely impeccable, having been the only Southerner to not secede with his state. And so he was brought in to balance the ticket, and he balanced it really well because Lincoln, as you recall, won an absolute landslide, uh, no question asked. And so following his drunken inauguration, Johnson settled down, fully expecting to just be VP over the Senate, beset by the needs and conflicts of Reconstruction. Then on April 14th at 10.15 p.m., he was woken up by a former governor from Wisconsin, Leonard J. Farwell, with the news that Lincoln had been shot and was apparently dying. 
and that Secretary of State Seward was critically injured in the same assassination attempt. Uh, Secretary of War Stanton sent guards to Johnson to ensure that he was at least safe, so they had that kind of line of secession handed down. And Johnson insisted on seeing Lincoln himself, although he did not linger at the president's deathbed. That was kind of ghoulish and inappropriate. So he, he came in, assessed the situation for himself, saw that yes, Lincoln was dying, there was likely to be no recovery from this, and then settled in to await the news, which was received at about 8 o'clock the next morning on April 15th. And he was asked when he wanted to be sworn in, and in a quiet ceremony with Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase, witnessed by several members of Lincoln's cabinet and some members of the House of Representatives, Johnson was sworn in as the 17th President of the United States. Now, at first, everything seemed fine. He kept Lincoln's cabinet intact. He had great admiration for Seward and would actually keep him on as Secretary of State for Johnson's entire presidency. Where things started to fall apart is that Johnson and basically everybody else who was in Congress realized that with the liberation of all the former slaves, the Three-Fifth Compromise was no longer in force um, because the slaves are no longer in bondage. What this means, so the Three-Fifth Compromise uh, really quick like Cliff's Nose version, just meant for every five black people in the South, only three of them would be counted towards representation in Congress. Well, with the eradication of slavery, suddenly every single one of them is eligible for representation in Congress, especially if they're found to be U.S. citizens, which is what the 14th Amendment eventually did. This meant that suddenly the South is going to have a whole lot of more representatives in the U.S. House of Representatives. And the race was kind of on. Johnson wanted to make sure that all of those representatives were white people representing white Southerners, and the rest of Congress was like, no, we really need to make sure that black people are getting represented now because they have clearly not been for the first 80 years of our country. Johnson, <laughs> in the approximately 14 months between his inauguration and the passage of the 14th Amendment guaranteeing citizenship, guaranteeing that representation, Johnson parted huge swaths of the rebellious population of the South so that they could vote in favor of the laws that would ensure the black populace stayed second class in the South, appointing military governors that were hostile to reconstruction attempts at Congress and vetoing every law he could. And he did all of this, and this was the most bizarre turn of like mentality. Like I don't know how this made sense to him, but his logic was since secession was illegal under the Constitution, the South didn't actually secede and therefore they were all still citizens. Not that they had in fact engaged in rebellious treasonous acts of insurrection. It was just, it was illegal and so therefore they couldn't have done it. I'm like, but I mean the four years of war and the, you know, hundred thousand, multiple hundred thousands dead certainly belie that logic, but that's the logic he used to issue these vast pardons for everybody who had rebelled. Weird. Uh, hostilities became so strong between Johnson and Congress that by the end of his term, Congress would pass a law, Johnson would veto it, and within 30 minutes, Congress would have re the required two-thirds vote to overturn the veto. I mean, like, never before, and I don't think since, has Congress pulled so mightily in the same direction in one go. Thirteenth Amendment, which freed all the slaves officially and was a requirement for acceptance back into the Union, uh, like the state had to ratify it in order to rejoin the Union. This was passed in the Senate on April 8, 1864 by the U.S. House of Representatives and on January 1st, 1831, 1865, um, it had passed both the Senate and the House of Representatives. Excuse me, let me rephrase that. 
13th Amendment was passed by the Senate on April 8th, 1864, and by the House of Representatives on January 31st, 1865. Since the majority of the rebelling states had not yet been accepted back into the Union, it was easily ratified by the existing states on December 6, 1865. And of the three Reconstruction Amendments that were passed, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, this is the only one that Johnson did not fight tooth and nail against. By the end of the Civil War, he was okay with the eradication of slavery. He was not okay with the concept that black and white people are completely equal. And he fought very hard to enshrine the status of, of the freedmen as beneath that of whites. That's, that was his like goal, okay? Now between the 13th and the 14th Amendments being passed, Johnson became the first president to be impeached. And it happened like this. Due to his general obstinance and continued appointment of military governors who backed his reconstruction plan versus Congress's, it became a very fraught, tense situation. So his plan was to keep the blacks disenfranchised and ignorant and to issue those wholesale pardons to the rebellious people. That was kind of his plan. Johnson, or the, the Congress wanted to enfranchise all of the freedmen so that they could get the representation that they needed. And they wanted to make sure that the Southern states were in line with what the new state of the union was, right? That everybody was free, that everybody is equal, that everybody has the right to vote. And Johnson hindered those plans at every step of the way. Everything he could do to make sure that those reconstruction acts were not passed or acted upon, he did it. And because he was so diametrically opposed, in the midst of this power struggle, Congress passes the Tenure of Office Act in 1867. Now, this was passed to strip the presidency of the power of patronage. Now, patronage is one of the perks of the office. Any political position, from a local postmaster to secretary of state, could be appointed by the president. Congress would have to approve the appointment for like cabinet posts, but everything else was open for the president to appoint loyal party members. And when he first stepped in, Johnson did not appoint anybody. He kept all of Lincoln's appointments more or less intact. But he believed that the appointment of military governor fell under his purview of patronage, and Congress disagreed. And so as he started revote, repealing the governors who had been appointed by Lincoln and installing his own governors who are going to make sure that his reconstruction plan was followed, Congress became vehement in their disagreement. Not led to the Tenure of Office Act. Now, Johnson and his whole cabinet, before this act passed, felt that this act violated the Constitution. And he initially vetoed the bill when it appeared, but Congress quite easily mustered the required two-thirds vote to overrule him, and the act became law. Now, the cabinet may have agreed it was against the Constitution, but once it became law, that was the law. It was up to the Supreme Court to overturn it. So Johnson was hoping to force the issue before the Supreme Court and attempted to fire Secretary of War Edward Stan Edwin Stanton excuse me, and replace him with Ulysses S. Grant. Now, the Tenure of Office Act allowed for a current cabinet member to resign, which Stanton refused to do. And Johnson, like, sent him a letter saying, hey, your resignation would totally be accepted. And Stanton is like, um, no, I'm not going to resign. I'm going to keep my job. Thank you very much. And so he, what Johnson did was he temporarily suspended Stanton while Congress was on recess and installed Grant. When Congress returned from their break, they overturned the suspension and Stanton returned to work. Now, Johnson tried to get Grant to refuse to step down. He even offered to pay the, he was $10,000 fine that was levied against anybody doing 
a job for which they were not appointed by or approved by Congress, I guess. And uh, Grant's like, yeah, that's great. You're going to pay that fine. But are you going to serve the five-year jail sentence that comes with that fine if the Supreme Court sides against you? Grant resented, that's probably a fair word, being used in Johnson's attempt to use him for political maneuvering and kept his distance from Johnson from that point forward. I, I mean, when Grant won in 1868, he refused to share a carriage with Johnson on Grant's inauguration day. He was just so disgusted by this political attempt. So Johnson then enlisted the aid of Lorenzo Thomas for the same scheme and fire Stanton outright. Congress was, in sense, was even in session. He's like, okay, you're out. Thomas, you're in. Um, Stanton did have Thomas arrested, and Grant did pony up the required five, it was only a $5,000 bond. It wasn't a fine, it was just the bond so that he could be released. And Johnson was impeached. On March 5th, 1868, the impeachment went through. Johnson's highly capable defense team ordered him not to appear at the trial, and for the love of God, stop giving public statements about this. Of the two, not giving public speeches was probably the biggest challenge for Johnson. I mean, Johnson loved to give public speeches. He felt that's where he really shone. And that's true when he was stumping for the U.S. House of Representatives in Tennessee. Not so true as president. He, he had a, a massive case of foot and mouth disease. Ultimately, he was found not guilty. The loophole that allowed the Senate to agree to a not guilty verdict is that Stanton had been appointed by Lincoln. But as written... The Tenure of Office Act only covered appointees of the current president. Since Stanton had been appointed by Lincoln and not by Johnson, technically he slid under the radar. But during the impeachment, several key senators only voted not guilty on Johnson's promise to play nice with Congress for the remainder of his term, which it was only going to be another year at that point. I mean, unless he gets you know, reelected on his own st stance, but things were so tense with Congress, that was really unlikely. And, and Johnson more or less did. He, he you know, obeyed the laws as they were passed, although he was still pretty quick with the veto. Congress was just as quick to overturn the veto. And his last year of office was more or less just this stalemate between them. Uh, the last amendment Johnson oversaw passage of <sighs> was the 14th Amendment, which grants citizens to, citizenship to all of those now freed slaves. And if they are citizens, they are entitled to representation, and Johnson really wanted that representation to be all white. The only reason he signed the 14th Amendment is that it had passed both houses of Congress and the requisite numbers of states, including some of the reconstructed states, enough to be, th th those states that were reconstructed enough to be out of war sanctions. Johnson hated signing it. I mean, he, he did it with a grim, just like, and I think in December of 1868, Secretary of State Seward announced that it was officially part of the U.S. Con uh, Constitution. It was now constitutional law. The 15th Amendment, which granted the right to vote to all the freedmen, was signed into law by Grant, and I think it was 1870. Now, Johnson briefly did hope that he might get nominated to run on his own right, but that contentious relationship with Congress prevented a nomination. And Ulysses S. Grant easily won the presidency, being sworn in on March 4th, 1869. Now, Grant refused to ride in the carriage with Johnson, and due to their strained relationship and Johnson's resentment over Grant's refusal to test the Tenure of Office Act with him, Johnson refused to attend the inauguration, making him the third outgoing president to do so, the first two being John Adams and John Quincy Adams. And so he returned to Greenville, Tennessee for the first time since 1861. 
And finding it entirely too quiet and dull, he began campaigning for election as U.S. Senator, which after a few years he was. He returned to the Senate on March 4th, 1875. Uh, Interestingly enough, he was a genuinely bipartisan pick in Tennessee. Uh, The Unionists of Tennessee remembered his loyalty to the Union and so supported his vote. The Secessionists remembered all of his help in keeping the freedmen as second-class citizens after the war, and so they supported his vote. So, I don't know. That's just weird. I mean, it's like everybody had something they hated about him, but everybody had something they loved about him. And so they're like, yeah, sure, we'll just throw him back in there. And then on July 31st, 1875, while visiting his daughter in Elizabethton, Tennessee, Johnson had a stroke and died. And he's buried in Greenville, Tennessee. And his wife, Eliza, who had been sick with consumption for almost their entire marriage. I mean, she must have, she must have been, I mean, she was sick, unquestionably, but she must have had, like, the, like, the constitution of a freaking horse because she just kept fighting off. Like, most people don't live 30 years with consumption, but she somehow managed to do it. But she followed him about six months later, and I believe they're both buried in Greenville, Tennessee. I don't know, man. I, I think... Yeah, Johnson, I think, has supplanted Jackson as my least favorite president, mostly because he was so delusional. He genuinely thought that his interpretation of the Reconstruction Acts and and the military governors in the South is what Lincoln would have wanted. But as we know, Lincoln may not have started out thinking that blacks and whites were equal, but by his second inauguration, he was pretty much there. I mean, he welcomed Frederick Douglass with open arms. Uh, Douglas met Johnson, and Johnson apparently made a face, and Douglas was like, yeah, that guy's a racist. Um, so I just, I I feel like he was just delusional. Um, so, it, like, if he had not spent most of the war as military governor of Tennessee, he might have known that Lincoln better and seen that the winds of change were blowing across the land, and Reconstruction might not have been the absolute cluster that it became. I I think his dreadful policies and absolute screaming racism contributed to the next hundred years of hatred and bigotry in this country. Um, I was curious about the Tenure of Office Act because I was thinking when I read that, I was like, okay, like Trump has been, was awfully quick to fire people when he was president. And it seemed like if that was still a thing, Congress would have 100% bludgeoned him with it. Um, the author happily covers it. The, the, uh, in his epilogue, the Tenure of Office Act was repealed in 1887. And in the 1920s, Johnson was posthumously vindicated when the Supreme Court determined that the Tenure of Office Act had been unconstitutional. Not sure what brought them to decide that, but it was decided. And he uh, experienced a bit of a return to favor politically and, and like historically because, hey, he was vindicated. Um, And the author's summation of Johnson's presidency was so spot on. I'm going to quote a bit from it. This isn't a direct quote. The whole quote's like a full paragraph, but I just took a couple of of key sentences. Um, Quote, What defeated him during his term in the White House was not so much his lack of formal education, nor even his tactlessness, but his failure to outgrow his Jeffersonian-Jacksonian background. Thus, though he was still able to leave his legacy of white supremacy and achieve re-election as senator in a more traditional Tennessee, he failed to impress his contemporaries in the country at large, and his administration was a disaster. Johnson was a child of his time, but he failed to grow with it. End quote. And that sums it up perfectly. He was a child of his time, but he failed to grow with it. That's it for this week. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button, and I will see you guys later. Bye.